The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Do you remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs? Just one verse this evening. Our text is Proverbs 14, verse 18. It is uh, on page 537 in the Pew Bible for using that. But let's give a careful attention to this, the public reading of God's word, Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 18. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. Amen. The grass withers, the flower falls, and the word of God, but the word of God endures forever and ever. Let's pray as we look to him to bless us. Gracious Father, we bless you for that word that you've given to us, and we pray, O Lord, that you would come to us again this evening. Grant by your grace that, that what is preached and what is heard and received is only that truth which is in Christ Jesus. By your spirit, then please use that to guide us, to preserve us on that path unto everlasting life unto which you have called us in him. Hear us, O God, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Thomas Watson's book is called The Godly Man's Picture Drawn with a Scripture Pencil. So if we can think of a godly man being drawn with a pencil, I guess we could ask the question, what does that picture look like? What is the picture of the godly man? Well, maybe we ought to see him with a crown on his head. That's not Watson's idea. That's my own idea. But he does begin with... uh, Knowledge, and I would say that the godly man's crown then would be knowledge. A godly man is a man of knowledge. Watson does cite our text that we consider this evening. The prudent are crowned with knowledge. Are we indeed to see that the picture of the godly man is something of a picture of a king? Well, God did create man in his own image. That means that he was created in true knowledge and he was created to reflect God's kingship, ruling, having dominion over the creatures. We might say ruling, exercising that dominion with the knowledge of the Lord. Of course, by God's grace as Christians, we are kings in the sense that we have been united to King Jesus and even now we are said to be reigning with him, with Christ. Truthfully, I don't know the extent to which the kingship imagery was on the mind of Solomon in writing the proverb. It could be that, uh, that he was thinking about his own kingship and the importance of, knowledge, of ruling over his kingdom in knowledge. But those words are crowned with, can be translated, are surrounded with. The idea might be that the, that the prudent abound in knowledge. At any rate, I think that, that, uh, that uh, crowned with knowledge imagery of uh, us having a, a crown of knowledge on our heads is maybe important for us, at least as by way of a metaphor, to help us think about just how important is knowledge in the Christian life. John Calvin's Catechism of 1545 likewise speaks to the importance of knowledge. I was wondering how it would have gone over this evening if I'd taken his first catechism question and used it for our affirmation of faith, the catechism of the Church of Geneva. Mind you, I never would have done that without the approval of the elders, but how could you go wrong with with John Calvin, right? Well, that, that catechism asks the question. Question one says, what is the chief end of human life? And the answer to know God. 
to know God by whom men were created, to know God. Of course, to John Calvin and more importantly to the scriptures, knowing God was not, not simply knowing information, right? simply knowing facts or knowing things, really knowing knowledge, knowledge that is, is about knowing him, knowing a person, knowing the Lord. And yes, that is indeed, knowledge is indeed a crowning feature of true godliness. Our message this evening is this, that the call unto godliness is a call unto the knowledge of the Lord. We'll consider that call into knowledge under three areas this evening. These are our three points. We'll consider it in our effectual calling and in our call unto sanctification and in our our call unto worship. That third point will be super brief at the end. Part of the reason for these uh, these categories I chose is because, as, as Watson writes about knowledge, he suggests that true knowledge has what he refers to as eight ingredients in it. And I intended these, these main points as sort of thinking about a, a helpful way to maybe categorize those eight ingredients. The more I meditated upon them, I came to realize that every one of those ingredients, or almost every one, can fit in one way or another, can fit in all three of those categories. At any rate, I think they're nonetheless uh, helpful categories. I'll kind of explain as we make our way along. But let's consider first, then, our effectual calling. Our first point is this, that the Lord has called us unto the knowledge of him in our effectual calling. So we stop and think about the call to aspire to be people of knowledge. It's important to remember that we are people of knowledge, that true believers have been given knowledge, every one of us, We shouldn't think of ourselves as sitting here as a congregation of believers, some who have knowledge and others who, well, not so much. No, all Christians have knowledge. Set aside for the moment the fact that there might be uh, some non-Christians, unbelieving visitors among us this evening. If that's the case, we're delighted that you're here. And setting aside the fact that even among those who have professed faith and are members of Christ's church, there might be those who don't truly have saving faith. I'm not talking about those in that category. I'm saying that if you are saved, you have knowledge. When Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, 4 of God's desire for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, he's not kind of delineating two separate categories of those who are saved. No, those who are saved are those who have come to the knowledge of the truth. They possess the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You may recall that the Apostle John in his first epistle addressed the the lies of those false teachers in Ephesus. There were those, those who were claiming that they possessed a certain knowledge that the rest of the Christians, the rest of the church, uh, was lacking. Well, John countered that error by writing these words, 1 John 2.20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. And in our affirmation of faith, we were reminded that, that in our effectual calling, the Spirit has enlightened our minds in the knowledge of Christ. As, again, as we think about what the Bible teaches about knowledge and as we think about those different ingredients of biblical knowledge, we will see that the Christian grows in knowledge. 
With respect to all of these various ingredients, we are called to grow. That is sanctification, and we'll get to sanctification. But before we get to that, I think it's important to stress fundamentally what every Christian possesses regardless of his or her level of sanctification. So, for example, Watson suggests for the first ingredient of knowledge that it is grounded. True knowledge is a grounded knowledge. He cites Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, which in the King James said, if ye continue in the faith, grounded. It says grounded and steadfast. The ESV translates that stable and steadfast. Think about this. Is it not true on a fundamental level that every true believer has knowledge that is grounded? True knowledge that that we possess as those who have faith in Jesus Christ is knowledge that is fixed upon, firmly fixed upon Christ. In that sense, yes, for every true believer, it is stable and steadfast. In that Colossians verse, the call is is to continue in the faith. Well, every true believer, by definition, has faith in Jesus. And, of course, knowledge is a component of faith. Sometimes we speak of faith as having three, uh, being comprised of three things, three components, knowledge, assent, and trust. If you have saving faith this evening, then you have knowledge. You, you understand certain things, certain gospel truths which the Bible teaches, right? You know, that the, the Bible teaches that you are a sinner and that Jesus came and he died on the cross for sinners and so forth. And not only do you know that, but you have given your assent to the truth of those facts. You agree that those gospel truths are, in fact, true. And, of course, faith involves not only knowledge and assent, but also trust. So you've trusted in Jesus to save you. Your knowledge is not simply that, that Jesus is the Savior for some sinners, but, but, but you've trusted that he has saved, trusted him to save you of your Sins. He is your Savior. That points us to another ingredient of knowledge. Divine knowledge is appropriating. Just by God's grace, you have appropriated, you have taken as your own the knowledge of Christ. The medicine of Christ's saving grace would do nothing to save a sick, dying soul unless it were applied. But as a believer, it has been applied to you applied to you by the Spirit who has given you faith so you have that knowledge such that you can truly say with, with Job, I know that my Redeemer, my Redeemer lives. Job chapter 19, verse 25. Every true believer has knowledge. Yes, we are called to grow in knowledge, but every believer has knowledge. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not unlike having the assurance of faith. We sometimes speak about whether one has assurance of faith or not. Well, I think we would all agree that, that every true believer has some assurance of faith, and no believer has perfect assurance. We still have that element of sin that causes us doubts and so forth. Well, in the same way, every believer has some knowledge, but no believer has perfect knowledge. Now, maybe this strikes you as an obvious point, maybe an, an unnecessary point, to make this evening, but I think it's important to remind us, dear Christian, God has given you knowledge. He's given you the very knowledge 
of him, to use the, uh, the crown metaphor uh, for every one of us. God has crowned us with knowledge. He has crowned you with the knowledge of him this evening. You, as, you are, as were the 12 disciples in John chapter 6. Remember when so many of the so-called disciples of Jesus were offended by his teaching and they stopped following him. They walked away from him. We read in verse 67 that Jesus turned and he said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Do you remember their response? It was Simon Peter who responded really representing the 12 and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, that is the knowledge, the knowledge of God. That is the knowledge which you have been blessed to possess this evening. So blessed. The world does not have that knowledge. It's a knowledge which comes from the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Do you realize this evening, dear brothers and sisters, how blessed you are to have that knowledge? Do you regard that as as a precious gift, a precious possession given you from God? If you do, what will you desire to do with that gift? Well, that brings us to our second point this evening, that the Lord has called us unto the knowledge of him in our sanctification. Again, using the crown imagery, we might say God has crowned us and God is also crowning us with knowledge. If we think of of knowledge as a precious gift, maybe we should think of it as a plant. Imagine if you were given a really expensive, a a rare, valuable, maybe an exotic plant of, of, of great, great value. If you were given a gift like that, what would you do with that gift? I'd hope you wouldn't want to let it die. You'd, you'd, you'd want to not only preserve it, you'd want to cause it to grow. You'd want it to, to flourish. One of the ingredients of, of knowledge is that it is a growing knowledge. Second Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think back to the text which we considered together last time. In fact, I'll invite you to turn there if you'd like to see it yourself in your Bibles. Second Peter chapter 1, that beginning section of Second Peter has much to say about knowledge. Second Peter chapter 1. We might think of the old chicken or the egg causality to dilemma, right? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? What about knowledge and virtue or moral excellence? Which came first, knowledge or virtue, which, which causes the other? I think Peter shows us that, that that question can be answered in both ways. Just note, by the way, how many times we see the word knowledge in this text. So uh, verse 2 says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3 tells us how how life and godliness, or maybe we might say godly living, comes through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Godly living, moral excellence, comes from knowledge, from knowing 
the Lord. And yet jumping down to verse 5, Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. That word virtue can be translated excellence. It's the very same word which is translated excellence in verse 3. And it continues, And virtue with knowledge. So yes, knowledge is a component of faith, but knowledge is also something to be added to faith or added to virtue, which is added to knowledge, or uh, added to virtue, which is added to faith, excuse me. So the command here is to to add knowledge to virtue, but then look at verse 6. It says we are to supplement knowledge with self-control and on and on. And so, so clearly, knowledge can be conceived of as, as, as a Christian grace which is added to other Christian graces, uh, or those graces lead to knowledge, but knowledge also leads to other graces. Of course, again, knowledge is itself a Christian grace. As you come to obey God and to, to be like God, you will grow in the knowledge of God, and your knowledge of God will cause you to become more like God, growing in his graces, more and more. Just note the language here, the way it describes this ongoing work of addition, supplementation. It describes so well that, that more and more progressive sanctification, that work of God's sanctifying grace. God's, God's grace is in, in making us to be godly is such an abundant grace. He adds grace Upon grace, it continues adding, multiplying in its effect of making us to be godly. And so it is with knowledge, which is such an important component of godliness. The godly man grows in knowledge. And by the way, when we understand true knowledge, I think it, it, it really helps us to avoid bad theology, like the theology that, that would say, oh, you can have Jesus as your Savior without having him as your Lord. We think of the fairly recent uh, Lordship Salvation debate, I say recent, and that it was a lot more recent than Thomas Watson, and yet Watson speaks to the, the way that problem existed. In his own day, he wrote, he who rightly applies Christ puts these two together, Jesus and Lord. He writes, many take Christ as Jesus, but they refuse him as Lord. And if you stop and think about it, to anyone who would think that way, to anyone who would claim to be a saved Christian, but would, be, would claim to have Jesus as Savior, though not thinking it necessary to follow him as Lord, I think we could simply ask the question, well, do you know him? Do you know him truly? To know him truly is to know and to receive him, the whole him, Savior and Lord, to receive all that he is, Jesus, the, the Savior, the Lord, the prophet, the priest, the king. You see, every true believer has, has come to the knowledge, has come to the truth about who Jesus is. Every true believer's mind, as we confessed earlier, has been enlightened in the knowledge of Christ. The Spirit is the one who enlightens us, lightens our minds to know him and, and enables us to embrace him, not, not just one part of him, to embrace him, Jesus Christ, the true Christ, the one who is offered in the gospel. And every true believer then knows Christ. And the most basic level, every true believer knows that Jesus is not only Savior, but Savior and Lord. 
Another ingredient of knowledge is that it is practical. The man of knowledge practices obedience to the commandments of Christ. In John 10, verse 4, we read about how the the sheep know the voice of the good shepherd and they follow that voice. They obey. They obey the voice of him whom they know. And again, if you think about that this evening, the, the thing that makes this knowledge so marvelous and so wonderful is just that, right? It's, 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 not, it's, not like, it's not about knowing impersonal qualities or things. It's about knowing him. It's about knowing the Lord. It's about coming more and more to know our God, to know who he is, to know what he is like. We can think back to the time when, when Moses was speaking, the Lord was speaking through Moses to the people of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 4, and the people were reminded of how, of how blessed they were to have the, the laws, the commandments. They were told that they were blessed above any other nation. And why is that? Well, I think one answer to that, to that question is because they were given knowledge and giving them the commandments. They'd been given the knowledge of the Lord. They were told how they would be blessed if they kept the commandments. Of course, insofar as they were able to keep the commandments, it was only by the the saving grace of the knowledge of the Lord, the saving knowledge of the Lord. But we read in Deuteronomy 4, 6, these words, keep them, that is the commandments, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people, a wise and understanding people, a people with the knowledge of the Lord, right? Verse 7 says, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? whenever we call upon him. See, God had so so graciously condescended to come down and come near to his people to make himself known. Obedience would flow out of the knowledge of him and would lead them to an even greater knowledge of him. And by God's grace, that's the the thing that drives the godly man in his pursuit of, of knowledge, his great longing to know God, to know God. That's life, right? This is eternal life, to know you, the true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. We know that 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 life comes only through Jesus Christ. Adam, back in the garden, he was offered life, but he forfeited that life. He, He sought after a different kind of knowledge. And in truth, we know that so it was with Israel under the old covenant. They did not keep the commandments. They followed the covenant-breaking sin, the unfaithfulness of the first Adam. But here God has come. Graciously, he has come near to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who came and, and lived according to the true knowledge of God. Jesus is the one who kept the law. Jesus is the one who fulfilled covenant. Jesus is the one who, is, who did so in order that we might truly know God through him. In the incarnation, God came so near to us that he truly became one of us, and he did so in order to bring us near to him. Think of, of our, the words of Christ in John 15, verse 15, where he said, 
No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not, listen to this, the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I have called you friends. I wonder if that word friend has been cheapened a little bit by Facebook, right? My wife tells me, I just got a friend request. Do you know this person? I have no, no idea who this person is, and they're requesting I be their friend. Should I accept this request? And if you're one who accepts those requests, you probably have dozens upon dozens, maybe hundreds of friends whom you've never even met. Maybe your only acquaintances that you share uh, mutual friends, but you don't know them at all. Well, obviously, Jesus is speaking of something so much deeper, so something so much more intimate than that. Yes, Jesus is a master, but he's one who invites us, invites us to know his business to know what he is doing, to know what he is like, to know his very heart, to know him, to know Christ. Brothers and sisters, is that not a friendship and with, uh, worth investing your time, uh, worth, worth working to, uh, to, to grow, to grow in that knowledge, to come to know him? Do you desire to know this one? By faithfully growing in knowledge, by being in the word, by being in prayer and in the various Many, many ways that God gives us to grow in the knowledge of him, even through Christian books we read or maybe podcasts we listen to. Is it worth studying the things of of Christ to know him? Do you desire to know him, to grow in the knowledge of him the way you would want to get to know your most cherished friend more and more? That's the way you, you become like him. By coming to know him, another ingredient of, of knowledge is that it is a transforming knowledge. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In our Lord's high priestly prayer, he prayed these words, John chapter 17, verse 3, I mentioned earlier, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know, if, if true life is to know God, then I think growing in the knowledge of the Lord, coming to know Christ more and more, that, that makes us to be more and more alive. Are you alive Do you desire to be ever more alive in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters? For Thomas Watson, another one of the ingredients of knowledge is that it is an enlivening knowledge. He he writes that the true knowledge animates. Again, going back to our first point, we would say, of course, every true believer has been enlivened, has been animated. We have been made alive in our effectual Calling, but Watson is speaking of becoming more and more alive with an increasing desire to know God. He writes, The godly man not only shines by illumination, but burns with affection. He compares it to the, the young woman we read about in the Song of Solomon, uh, as uh, how she's moved by her knowledge, her desire to be with her beloved. She longs to be with him. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick 
with love. I am sick with love for my beloved. Song of Solomon 5.8. Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride and, and he is more wonderful. His love infinitely greater than was ever the love of Solomon or any other bridegroom in this world. And the more we come to know, to know that, the more our, our love for him comes to reflect his great love for us. And yes, that, that makes us burn with affection, burn with affection, with a longing to know him more and more. I think we see that in the Apostle Paul. If we think about uh, Paul's words in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. In fact, if you'd like to see it yourself, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is a text in which I, I think we find such amazing words about, yes, about Paul's own longing to know. And I think it speaks so well to, really, to the paradox of the Christian life. How on the one hand, Christianity is not about striving to attain anything, right? Uh, Christianity is about, about receiving and resting in what, what Christ has attained. We don't, we don't work to lay hold of Jesus. Jesus is the one who has laid hold of us by faith. We simply receive and rest in him, rest in that life which is ours by grace through faith. Paul certainly had come to see that. You know, in his former life, he was striving, as every good Pharisee was, he was striving to keep the law in order to attain unto the resurrection. He was striving. That was his life until that day when he came to see Jesus had been raised from the dead, until that day when he saw the resurrected one and he became a witness of the resurrection. Paul came to understand that, that resurrection could never be attained, not by Paul's or any other sinner's own law-keeping, but only through Christ and his death and resurrection, that it was a free gift of grace to all who believe in him, a gift received by faith alone. But does that mean that as a believer in Jesus Christ, that, that Paul's life was no longer a life of striving? No, not at all. The, the, the other side of the coin is, yes, I suppose, paradoxically, that, that, that those who possess that life long for that life. They long to receive it in all of its fullness. The Spirit moves them unto a striving to lay hold of it. And so in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul uses that language of striving. Twice he says, I, I press on, verse 12 and verse 14. And in verse 13, he describes how he is straining forward. But here's the thing I want us to see. Why does Paul so long for that life? Because for Paul, life is knowing, knowing Christ. Look at verse 8 and following. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may, listen to this, that I may know him that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I think we can say that Paul was one who was sick with love, sick with a longing to know his Savior, to know Christ. He longed to know him. He wanted to know him. He wanted to know his resurrection power, empowering him unto obedience, ready to know him even in death, knowing that if that was what Christ called him, even to martyrdom, he would count that as a blessing, that I might know him, know him in his sufferings, and that I might know him in his resurrection, and that I might know him forever and ever in glory. That brings us to our last point this evening, that that I might forever worship him. Our last point is really just a concluding word of application, that the call unto the knowledge of the Lord is a call to worship the Lord. There are a couple of reasons I wanted to conclude with that thought of worship on our hearts and on our minds this evening. One was simply to complete the, the crown imagery. God has crowned us, and God is crowning us To what end? What will we do with that knowledge? Well, if we think of Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, we might think of it this way. Take our crowns and throw them before the throne of God as we worship him, right? The other reason for thinking about worship is because two of the other ingredients of godly, uh, of knowledge, which I've not mentioned, are one, true knowledge is a self-emptying self-emptying or a humbling knowledge. You know, false knowledge puffs up with pride or even knowledge of true things misapplied, wrongly used, can puff one up. We think of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, knowledge puffs up. True knowledge or knowledge rightly applied is a humbling knowledge. Watson writes, true knowledge brings a man out of love with himself The more he knows, the more he blushes at his own ignorance, how true that is. And and, and true knowledge is an appreciative knowledge. The the lapidary, the, the one who works with stones, the one who cuts precious stones, knows those stones so well. He understands their value. He's the one who's able to appreciate the value of those stones. When we come to know God... When we have that knowledge of God, we come to see how infinite, of uh, what infinite value he is. He is valuable. He is precious beyond anything in this world. We can say with the psalmist, Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Surely then self-emptying and appreciative knowledge is knowledge that would lead one to worship. Truly, you do not know God if you do not come to worship this God, and you worship him truly as you come to know him more fully. Let's be eager. Let's be zealous to pursue this godly Knowledge, as we are eager and zealous to worship the God who we are coming more and more to know, because it is that to which God has called us, as he's called us to be a people of knowledge by his grace. As, as Peter writes, but grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and unto the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray together.
Oh, Lord, fill us with the knowledge of yourself, we pray, by your Spirit. May it move us, yes, evermore, to say, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. May your name be glorified in us, your people, as by your grace we show ourselves to be a people of knowledge. Cause that knowledge to multiply, Lord God. And as we come to know you more fully, may we come to love and worship and serve you more fervently, more faithfully. Oh God, yes, now and even unto the day of eternity. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.